This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Sean Hackett, president of Hackett Financial Advisors. Sean has a very interesting background, and he has studied the natural cycles of the solar system for many years now. And that's what we are going to talk about today. So, Sean, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I love being on this program, Marcello. It's uh, it's really an honor, and uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Now, before we start talking about the weather, sun activity, and all that, could you please tell us what Hackett Financial Advisors is and what kind of services it provides? We provide advisory service for grain markets, for soft markets like coffee, sugar, etc., um, and for livestock markets where we price forecast using our natural weather cycles and our smart money insider capital flows to give important buy signals and sell signals in any given year so that the farmer, the producer, the end user can make valuable decisions for their business to monetize it or on a long-term basis. And that's really what our focus is, what it has been and what it continues to be. So uh, to start with, uh, do you believe in global warming? Do you think it's uh, man-made or there's a better theory or, or theories out there that uh, explains this? We believe in the theory that the climate is always changing. It always has been changing. And it always will be changing, meaning anybody that thinks that the weather is supposed to not change doesn't understand the history of climate. So we actually view climate change deniers are those that deny the fact that climate is always changing. So the issue is not, is climate changing? Yes, it is. Um, and that's normal. But the, but the idea of what makes the climate change, what has made the climate change over hundreds and thousands of years is where we differ greatly from what the popular commentary is of today, that humans are primarily responsible for the current trend in climate change, where our research says that the natural climate cycles that have always been in place are actually the ones involved in why the current change in climate is taking place and why it will continue to be there. And so that's really where we draw a big distinction. We don't deny climate is changing. We don't deny the fact that we have been in a general warming trend, but we certainly differ on the reasons behind it. Yeah, Sean, I, I tend to agree with you on this one. And, uh, and to our listeners, I would say that uh, you wrote a very detailed report last December uh, with uh, charts, pictures and, and everything to make it easier for people to understand this, uh, this climate change issue. Now, you believe that the Earth warms up and cools down according to a few factors like the sun cycles and the sea. So could you please explain the sun cycles to us? I believe many people are familiar with the moon cycles. You, you can easily observe it. But very few people know that the sun also has its own cycles. Yeah, I mean, if, if one looks at the history of the... Let's first step one. Let's step back. The, the normal sun cycle is a 12, 11 to 12 year cycle where we go from no sunspots to high sunspots to no sunspots. In a every 12 years, we, we oscillate back and forth. Normally, that oscillates in a normal amplitude and provides a normal solar radiation in the Earth's atmosphere. That's normal. But every about every 200 years, what happens is that the overall sunspot activity or the overall solar radiation falls. So, for example, the 
peak of the last 12-year solar cycle in 2015, the sunspots and the solar irradiation were only half of what was no, what is normally expected under a normal solar cycle environment. And when we enter these periods of lower sunspot cycles and lower solar irradiation, they tend to last not just a few years, they tend to last 30 to 50 years before the sun gets back to operating normally. Now, there's a lot of sophisticated reasons why this happens. I'm not sure if that's something you'd like to go over, but we certainly can. But, but it's important to understand that we have a rhythmic cycle to the sun of when it fires up and when it quiets down. And we know from history, looking at tree ring analysis and ice core analysis, looking at temperatures and CO2, that the, uh, during these periods of low solar activity, temperatures on the Earth have always fallen fairly dramatically without any exception. So unless we are going to uh, diverge from thousands of years of temperature data and solar cycle data, we would expect that we are entering into a period of 30 or 40 years where the temperatures on the Earth are likely going to be in a general declining phase. Once again, climate changing, but changing differently than it has you know, the last 40 years. Got it. You, you mentioned the sunspot. What, what's a sunspot? Sunspot is a, is, a, is a massive explosion on the surface of the sun that sends massive amounts of heat you know, above the sun's atmosphere, and it causes what's, what's called solar wind. So they actually can measure this. You know, these people can actually measure solar wind. And the more sunspots you have and the more heat and solar radiation that is thrusted out into, this, into space, the greater the solar wind. So think of it as like a fan. And if you have a, a heater or a flame by a fan and you put the fan on, you can feel the heat hitting your face. Whether it, other than that, if, if it's a stagnant weather environment, it takes a much longer for you to recognize the heat that's there. So the solar wind is a powerful uh, element to how much heat and solar radiation that the atmosphere experiences. And when the solar sunspots decrease, the solar wind also decreases and it changes dramatically the interaction of, of the sun's heat and solar radiation in the atmosphere and dramatically changes these, you know, the, the upper level air flow, what we call the jet stream, which primarily is what drives the southern and northern hemisphere weather patterns. And if you change that, upper airflow, you dramatically change our climate. And that's really what we've been going through in the last few years of why we've been having some really, really unusual, aberrant, and volatile weather. So you do a lot of research on agricultural commodities. How important are the natural cycles of the sun to it? And how reliable is it? Well, I mean, we, you know, we went back, all the research that we have found is that all the periods in throughout the history of human society, the biggest problems with the economy, the biggest problems with food shortages, the big, biggest problems with uh, politics, geopolitics. For example, um, every single dynasty in China that has ever fallen has fallen during a period of a grand solar cycle because of a lack of food to feed the Chinese during those periods of time. So, you know, you know the, 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 the history is rich with boom times, prosperous times when the sun is acting normally and very, very dark times or, or difficult, challenging times when the solar cycle is not firing normally and is weak. Um, and it really, at the end of the day, comes down to the inability to produce food at a level that's required to you know, satisfy the appetite of the people that are living at the time. Because at the end of the day, it, when it all comes down to it, food is the most important thing that you and I and anybody else has. If we can't 
eat enough food, if we don't have enough food to feed ourselves and our family, everything else is fairly material. And that's really what it comes down to, as it has always come down to throughout history. And, and, and that's why we feel the value of food, which today is at its cheapest level, um, one of the cheapest levels um, in history, is likely going to be repricing higher so that the world can incentivize those that produce food to find creative and innovative ways to make more of it at a time when the weather is going to be very difficult to do that. So we're really in this idea that the only way that this works is you have those that are really good at growing food, those that have really good ideas of how to grow food, need to have capital to invest to figure out ways to do it. And right now, from what, you know, from what we can see, you know, everyone is, is being told, we don't need you to grow food because prices are so low. Very few producers are making much money. In fact, most of them are losing money right now. And that, in our view, can't, can't uh, sustain itself if we're correct about what's to take place with the weather. Got it. One interesting point is that the sun is also impacted by all the other planets in the solar system. And uh, the sun does not rotate around itself, but around the center of mass of the solar system, not its own center of mass. So how would this impact the climate on Earth? Well, we, we, we always talk, we, we try to talk in analogies with our customers so they can kind of understand the concept. If one kind of thinks about a washing machine and you put your clothes in a washing machine and you, everyone, you know, it has a spin cycle and it spins really, really fast. And I know that I'm not very good at putting my clothes in the washing machine nicely and evenly distributed. What happens is too many clothes get stuck on the one side of the sphere. And so when it spins around, it wobbles and makes all kinds of noise. And, and my wife yells at me that I didn't do it right. And, and that's what happens with, <laughs> that's what happens with the sun. The planets all rotate around the sun at different rates. Um, and, and, and when you work out mathematically, at some point what happens is that all the plants get moved or get bunched on one side of the sun versus the other, and that causes the center of the solar system to move away from the sun's center of mass. And when that happens, it wobbles, just like the spin cycle of a washing machine when the clothes are on the wrong side. And that wobbling or that violent um, rotation around the battery center is what they call the center mass of the, of the solar system, dramatically changes how the sun operates and how it can uh, it, it, it translates its solar activity to the Earth. And there's been research, really, really good research that's been done uh, that shows that um, every single time we've seen the sun go through one of these very what we call disturbed rotations around its battery center it has been consistently associated with this 200-year low period for solar cycles. And so when you look at you know, when we look at this, we are actually in one of those cycles where the sun is rotating very widely and disturbedly around the center of mass because of this condition. Um, and so it's, a, it's an alternative cycle that confirms what's going on with the quieting of the sun. Um, and, and, and we always like to find multiple cycles that all agree about something happening. The more we can, more long-term cycles we can find that agree with each other, the more confident we can be to making a forecast about what is to happen. And that's a very, very reliable cycle and is consistent what's been going on with the sun and why our weather volatility and weather uh, and, the, and the climate has been changing so very dramatically here, especially over the last couple of years. The natural cycles of the solar system are not the only variable that you use in your models. I believe you also use others like uh, the temperature of the oceans and, well, maybe something else. So could you please tell us about the temperature of the oceans and how it affects the climate? And also, are they related to, to each other? 
I mean, the, the cycles of the solar system and uh, ocean temperatures? Well, I mean, there's two big bodies of ocean, Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean. We try to communicate to our customers in this way. Think of a bathtub. If you put scalding hot water in a bathtub and you close the door, the surrounding air is going to warm up. If you have another bathroom with ice water with ice in it and you close the door, the surrounding air is going to cool down. So this is this is the concept between why sea surface temperatures of the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean significantly alter the temperature on the Earth. Um, the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean follow a very reliable 40-year cycle. So, for example, period from 1900 to 1940, Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean were warming. And we had a warming planet, a warming environment. In fact, it led to the Dust Bowl crisis in the U.S. where we had... To this day, to this day, that was the hottest decade by far to this day that we've had um, over the last 200 years was the 1930s, which was the end of that period of the warming Atlantic and Pacific Ocean temperature. But then all of a sudden, what the cycle would suggest was that from 1940, 1980, we would be seeing the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean start to cool in temperature, which they did. And then we, and then we got, it got so cold. And in the 1970s, we had the global cooling scare. I remember being five years old, sitting on the, watching television, and had scientists telling me you know, that we were all going to die because we were entering into an ice age, and it was, you know, it was, it was all over because we, it was the end of that 40-year cooling cycle of the of this, these two key bodies of water. But then, as the cycle would suggest, from 1980 to 19 uh, to 2020, we would be seeing a, a warming of Atlantic and the Pacific, which we have, and that generally we'd be in a warming trend for temperatures, which we have seen, and it's now led to the global warming scare over the last 10 years. Where everyone's thinking we're going to die because we're going to be warming up forever and we're all going to burn up. You know, we go through, it, it, it's, it's, just, it's a repeated cycle. Unfortunately, it takes about 40 years for the population to get scared before the trend's about to change. What I would say um, about sea surface temperatures is the biggest difference, and, and this is really important, the biggest difference between 1940 and 1980, the, you know, the, the cooling of the sea surface temperatures, was that the sun during that period of time was acting normally. So even when the sun was acting normally, the power of those sea surface temperatures going down still cooled the planet enough to create a global cooling scare. What concerns us is that the next cooling cycle for the Atlantic and the Pacific is supposed to start now, meaning from 2020, 2060, based upon the cycle, we'd expect the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean start, those sea surface temperatures start to decline, and we would expect the then the temperatures of the Earth to start to decline, but the sun is now also going quiet. So now we have two factors that are in place today. We only had one factor in place between 1940 in 1980, which suggests that this current phase that we believe we're entering into should augur in a much, much more severe cooling cycle than the last one. And, and it's something that could create much greater food disruptions um, when those two are aligned. So we went back and tried to correlate this with um, temperature and CO2, temperature and sea surface temperature and solar. And what we found was that over the last 500 years, the correlation between CO2 concentrations and temperature is 18%. A, statistical significant correlation coefficient means 75%, meaning that you need a 75% coefficient in order to have what we call a statistically significant cause and effect. When we did it with sea surface temperatures of the Atlantic and the Pacific and solar, the correlation coefficient was 88%. So it's very clear to us what drives the temperature based upon a long, long look at 
you know, the history of temperature and these, and these different variables. And so to us, it's pretty clear to us that, you know, we are you know, looking at a situation where when we have the sun and the sea surface temperatures in Atlantic Pacific going down with an 80% correlation, the odds strongly favor that the current fear over a never-ending warming planet due to CO2 is likely misplaced, just as the global cooling scare in the 1970s was misplaced because uh, that was based upon just the sea. That wasn't based upon the sea and the sun. And so everybody got it wrong in the 70s, and we believe everyone is getting it wrong again and and trying to find reasons for, for for whatever reason, humans like to think that we have have this dramatic impact on the earth. Not that we don't have an impact, but I think sometimes humans think too highly of themselves. (laughs) I'm a sailor. I've sailed all my life. I've been out in really, really unusual conditions, and I can tell you, you get humbled very, very quickly when you're out in the ocean for three weeks at a time and Mother Nature does what she does to you. You realize how insignificant you are relative to what Mother Nature decides she wants to do. And so I would view our contribution to climate change um, to be, at best, extremely minor and way overblown based upon the history of looking at all this data. Changing a bit the subject, how important is uh, El Nino and La Nina to farmers, combined with all that you said above? Is La Nina going to happen uh, next year? El Nino and La Nina has been around forever. And, it's always, and even under normal, normal times, Marcello, even under normal times, these are significant weather events, depending on which one you have. And of course, this is a, is a concept of what the Central Pacific sea surface temperatures are. Not the whole Pacific, just the Central Pacific. So El Nino is when you have warm water in the Central Pacific. La Nina is when you have cold water in the Central Pacific. So think of it this way. When you have a, uh, when you have a warm body of water, what happens is, is that water, the warm water evaporates, heat rises, and causes excess moisture to occur for North America, for lots of parts of the Northern Hemisphere. And so, for example, we had an El Nino last year, and we had, in the U.S., the worst flooding and worst precipitation we've ever seen in, reco- in our recorded history yeah, that we can record in 150 years. It was the worst flooding, the worst, the most precipitous precipitation we've ever seen. What we try to tell everybody about El Nino and La Nina within a grand solar cycle minimum, a grand solar cycle minimum means a long period of lower sunspot, is that a low sunspot period amplifies the effect of El Nino. We always know El Nino means cool and wet for the U.S., for example. But under a grand solar cycle, it just blew that uh, condition, you know, just blew it out of the water and we had something we've never seen before. So now we, we are moving. We, this is the transition year. Meaning we're moving away from El Nino. We're moving towards El, to La Nina. So La Nina is expected to come into play in 2021 into 2022, potentially even early 2023. And typically, for example, for the United States, that typically means extremely, extremely long cold winters and extremely hot dry summers. If you look at a chart, for for example, for corn yields, for the U.S. corn yield, and you look at majority of all the big declines in corn yields, 80% of them, maybe even 85% of them occur during a La Nina. Only a, only a smaller portion occur during other times. The last time that we really, really had a La Nina was in 2010. 2011, 2012. We know how difficult that those three years were for not only the U.S., which had the 2012 drought that was one of the worst droughts we've seen in a long time, but we had the Russian drought the year before that you know dramatically uh, 
made the wheat market take off, and we had a lot of problems even in South America during that time. So we, and, and by the way, but that was under a normal solar cycle environment. So our anticipation is that we are going to see the normal La Nina behavior, but it's going to be amplified dramatically, and it's going to be that much worse. So we find this period coming up, 2021, 22, and 23, to be probably one of the worst periods for Northern Hemisphere weather, especially, that we will have seen in our lifetimes. And that's going to you know, cause a supply shock that we haven't really seen really since 2010, 11, 12, Boston, so anything like what we think is coming up. Um, and so this is a time that we are expecting food to be repriced much, much higher than what we think is going to happen. Got it. And is it because we're going to have longer winters or because the sunspot activity overall will be reduced even in the, in the summer months? The market's going to begin to understand that we're going to have, that we're in a different temperature and weather volatility regime that's permanent for not just a few years, but for a few decades. And because of that, the price of food is going to have to be permanently higher to be able to reflect that and have those that are growing production figure out ways to get through it. We will get through it. We've always gotten through it, but it's going to take higher prices to do it. Sure. Now, do you follow the development of fertilizers and micronutrients? Is, is there a technology today that can reduce the amount of sun that farmers need to, to grow their crops? And, uh, and still produce a decent harvest? Unfortunately, most of the research that has been done in the last 30 to 40 years, because we've been in a generally warming environment, the concern has always been for how do we deal with a warmer climate? How do we deal with a drier climate? And unfortunately, what we're heading into, if we're correct, which is a cooler climate and, and oftentimes a wetter climate and, and, and dealing with greater chance for frost risk, which we, in a warming environment, you know, the frost risk is taken off the table in most countries, but in a cooling environment, the frost risk, either at the beginning or the end, starts to go up dramatically. Um, I don't believe that we have been spending the kind of money or investing the kind of research that we can handle those kinds of stresses like we can handle the hot, dry stress as much. And so um, it's not that the technology doesn't exist or isn't available or couldn't be developed. It's just that no one has had an incentive to develop it. And remember, we're still, everyone is still putting out there that we need to be preparing for a burning up environment, burning up climate. So the money is still not going there. So, so unfortunately, even though I believe that the solutions are available, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a shock to the system to force the change in investment towards finding those solutions which are available. It's kind of like hacking, right? When natural gas in the U.S. went to $15 to $20 and And everyone said, oh my gosh, we're, we're going to run out of natural gas. We're never going to find another way. Fracking had been around for decades, but no one had an incentive to invest in it and figure out a way. And then when the price finally gave that, that, that capital and gave that reason, all of a sudden, what happened? Fracking took off. We figured out a way. And then we've had ample natural gas ever since. So I would say that the technology and the, and the, and the capability is there, but the investment is right now being misdirected. Now, uh, knowing all that we have discussed so far, What do you recommend traders and farmers do? And, and which commodities do you recommend people uh, to get exposure to? Well, I mean, we think that the particular commodities that are at most risk to, let, let, let's say the next three years, let's just focus on what we think a La Nina is going to look like for the next three years. A La Nina is always a cool, like even a warming environment, a La Nina means that the earth cools pretty substantially because we're dealing with these colder waters in the central Pacific. So if we're correct about the amplification of that trend in a grand solar, it means that those commodities that are particularly susceptible 
to colder weather to frost risk um, would be our would be the ones that I think could have the the largest gain. So so in in the, in the case of let's you know if if we want to kind of lay it out, you know, natural gas is a although it's not an ag commodity, it is an it, our agricultural producers use a lot of natural gas in their operations. I mean, we could definitely see how natural gas supplies could come extremely short if we have the kind of winters coming up that we're anticipating. So that, that would be one particular commodity that we would be paying attention to. In terms of ag commodities, think of winter wheat, right? You plant winter wheat in the fall, you harvest it in the late spring, early summer. It's extremely, extremely vulnerable to early frost and extremely vulnerable to late, to, or, I mean, to uh, you know, early fall frost and late spring frost. So we could see the winter wheat market in the northern hemisphere being under all kinds of trouble. You could just imagine coming out of dormancy and uh, you know and, and being vulnerable and being and then having a a late spring frost. What that would look like for the winter wheat uh, crop, it, it, it would be fairly different. So we think the winter wheat market is extremely susceptible to this. And lastly, you know, looking down in South America, you know, the coffee market historically has always been extremely sensitive to frost risk. Now, of course, when we've been in a warming environment, the frost risk has been largely taken off the table. And, and, and now everyone thinks that, you know, it's permanently no longer an issue. But of course, in the 1970s and in the 1980s, even into the early 1990s, um, you know, we had frost all the time. So we think that the, that, that the coffee market could be extremely susceptible to a shift downward in temperature and a moving toward a, a colder overall climate during you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the June, July, August, September timeframe. So we would think that those three commodities are particularly sensitive to what could happen here in the next three years. And that would be places that I would be, that we would be looking at and, and people should be thinking about is whether you're a producer, whether you're a buyer of those commodities, whether you're an investor, those are the places we'd be investigating how to participate because we think they, those could be where you get size gains because they're the most susceptible to those kinds of conditions. Brilliant. Sean, again, uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. Your experience is very valuable and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you so much. It, it was an honor and you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime. I really, really appreciate the, the opportunity to speak with you. It's been great. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. <laughs>